I bring this up because we're starting to see COVID numbers go up again a bit here in BC. Today, the premier, who just underwent cancer treatment, announced that he had contracted COVID-19. John Horgan said on Twitter that he'd received the test results early today. Quote, fortunately, my symptoms are mild, and that is thanks to being fully vaccinated. He also said, I'm following public health guidance, isolating and working from home. Over a three-day period, BC is reporting 728 new cases, up from 556 last week, this time last week, and 321 people in hospital. That's up from 288 this time last week. Meantime, in Ontario, they reported 857 hospitalizations today, and that's an increase of about 30% from this time last week. Premier Doug Ford says the province is in the midst of a, quote, little spike of COVID-19, but that it is prepared. Ford says the province has added more acute care beds and now has antiviral pills available. We're going to continue to be cautious. I follow the advice of the chief medical officer, uh, but our hospitals are in good shape right now. We we expected a little spike. Uh, we said that over the last month. But again, that little spike, we're being able to manage it. Ontario Premier Doug Ford there. So what is the state of the pandemic? Are we really seeing just a, quote, little spike or something more serious with this new Omicron variant BA2? Joining me now is Colin Furness. He's an infection control epidemiologist and an assistant professor at the Faculty of Information at the University of Toronto. Colin, thanks for your time. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. Thanks. So I guess just a state of the union. What are we seeing suddenly in the last uh, few weeks when it comes to when it comes to COVID infections, especially with this new variant? Well, the new variant really is what we're seeing. It's BA2, which is a variation on Omicron. It doesn't appear to be more intrinsically virulent or dangerous, but it is a lot more contagious. And let's be clear, Omicron, especially if you're not vaccinated, Omicron is a dangerous virus for many. I have been seeing, just anecdotally, we saw the Premier of BC announce that he had tested positive for COVID today. I've, I've seen many more people, just anecdotally, friends, you know, people I know on social media reporting positive tests. Is, is, that, uh, is that what you're seeing as well? Are we seeing a trend now of, of an upward swing? Certainly in Ontario, it's, it's pretty hard to find people who don't have someone in their immediate circle who's had it or perhaps themselves. My view is with what we know, about COVID transmission, if you are going unmasked in public places indoors, you can expect to have COVID. If not, if not this week, the next week or the week after. So it is it is that prevalent and that contagious. Now, of course, a lot of places uh, began lifting these protections a while back uh, based on their assessment of where Omicron was going. How much should we be reassessing that given uh, BA2? I think the lifting of restrictions was really not based on an assessment of Omicron. Right. We've seen this before, and it's it's not a big surprise, and that's, that's uh, almost a year ago uh, with what was then the third wave, that there was a new variant that was ascending as the old one was descending. And if you looked at those two graphs separately, you realized that we simply were on a pause, that it was coming right back up. We've known that too for Omicron. That's been pretty clear with, with classic Omicron and now this BA2 variant that is more contagious. So we've known for many weeks that this was going to happen. And the debate has simply been when and how big. And I think we're starting to get a better idea that when is soon and now. And it looks, it's not clear, but it looks like, unfortunately, it, it could be sizable. With the mask mandates lifted, we knew there was going to be a jump, I think. 
um, and that was, I, I assume, that was the cost that 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 public health officials were had already taken into consideration. Do you think that was? Do you think that's the, that's the case? I think the decision was was a political one. I don't think anyone who understands communicable disease would follow that logic and say, yes, this is a good idea. And the reason for that is, and this is just communicable disease, this is how it works. The more cases you have, the more cases you get. It runs out of control extraordinarily quickly. So to have a plan and to glibly say, oh, we expect there to be increases, but it'll be manageable, that doesn't make sense. When you have a communicable disease that increases, it gets out of control. And this, of course, has happened again and again. This is this is not some hypothetical. This is exactly what we've been doing with every wave, is we've created the conditions where it can increase and then we lose control. So that logic doesn't make sense, unless you're a politician. And if you're a politician and you want to be the purveyor of good news, you want to be the person who ended the pandemic, you want to be the purveyor of the good news that we don't need to wear masks anymore, if that's what you want to do, then this was a reasonable decision to make. But it wasn't. Do we even have a clear picture anymore of how many people have COVID? We can estimate it really crudely using wastewater signals. And we wastewater analysis is very new. It's it's certainly not something I know that much about. But you can if you if you can go back to when we did know uh, roughly how many people had COVID. And remember, we've never detected and diagnosed every case, but we knew we were getting about one in four. So we could multiply that. Now we think maybe we're diagnosing one in 10, maybe, but that's a lot less clear. But if we can compare when we did know with more certainty to wastewater signals, we can get a sense of these levels mean something. But wastewater signals will vary in different regions. It, 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 you only get a really rough idea. And, and unfortunately, that rough idea is probably well north of thirty to 40,000 cases a day in Ontario alone. So it's, it's, it's running pretty high. That being said, I noticed that from BC statistics, at least, that hospitalizations have leveled off. I mean, all the danger signs that we were looking for earlier in this pandemic seem to have reduced a bit now. Is that just a pause, do you think? I think it is, unfortunately. We saw the same thing in Ontario and hospitalizations and deaths are a lagging indicator. It takes many weeks from a virus to really start to climb in order to infect enough people and enough people severely so that you really notice it in hospital admissions. And Ontario numbers are all up. And it's they're particularly up in pediatrics, particularly under five, particularly under two. Um, those, those tiny bodies have a really hard time. They can't be vaccinated. And so they're, they're maximally susceptible to, to a severe outcome. Not everyone has a severe outcome, but uh, we can't predict that. And so that's obviously really, really concerning. So unfortunately, I think you can expect that to rise. The language, the political language in Ontario has been, we'll be able to manage it. But I think the scientific understanding is we can't say that. We don't know. We don't know how big this is going to be because we don't know our existing immunity because we stopped measuring. So we're, we're in a blind place, hoping for the best and just not planning for what might be worse. I would imagine that someone in your position, an infection control epidemiologist, does not want to be in a blind place when it comes to an epidemic. Personally, I think my anxiety has never been higher. When I know what's going to happen next, and I can talk about it clearly, what we, what's going to happen next, it gives you agency. It gives you something that you can do. Instead, we're waiting, and I see this diverging epistemology of people who are doubling down that COVID is nothing, and people who are getting more and more frightened. And there's no reasonable middle ground, which is too bad, because we should all be standing in the reasonable middle ground, saying, we understand the threat, and we understand that it's airborne, and we understand basic things we can do. 
in order to prevent that from happening. So it, it's, it's, it's a pretty frustrating place to be for me. What would you like to see done to ease a bit of that frustration, understanding that politically, of course, we now look across the country and see that there is a significant proportion of the population that seems to be done with these protections? Well, you know, they say that fear has a very short half-life in health behavior change. And I, I see that's true again and again. Unfortunately, we may need to see catastrophic numbers, hospitalizations, in order to be shaken out of this complacency. And I, 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 hope, I hope it doesn't come to that. But I, I agree. There is a, just a huge amount of fatigue. And, you know, that's a problem. We saw the same thing, by the way, 100 years ago at the end of Spanish flu, was people just stopped caring after a while and, and disease rates rose. That last wave was the worst. So it, it's, 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 in a sense, I guess, possibly inevitable. But I, I also have to say, I think there's a failure of the imagination and public health decision making to plan for a sustainable way forward. Every time I hear we've just got to live with COVID, that's code for we've got to do nothing at all and let there be a lot of suffering and, and even death among vulnerable people. And I, as a Canadian, I just I find that I find that unacceptable. Learning to live with COVID needs to be, and this is to answer your question, a commitment to indoor air quality standards. That's that's the sustainable way forward. We can't wear masks forever. We can't be under pandemic restrictions or protections forever? Of course not. We need to find the way forward. Let's admit COVID's airborne because we haven't, not in policy. Some politicians have let it slip, but not in policy. Let's let's mandate indoor air quality standards. No one's freedom was ever trampled upon. No one ever got, had to get in a truck and drive because someone plugged in the HEPA filter. So there are things we can do, I think, that we can all agree are a good idea as long as we live up to the science and admit that COVID's airborne. We need to embrace N95 masks for those times when we do need to mask because that's the only one that's going to work uh, reliably. I'm speaking with Colin Furness, infection control epidemiologist and an assistant professor at the Faculty of Information at the University of Toronto. We're talking about the current state of COVID-19. We're seeing what we think is a rise in cases again, uh, specifically linked to a new variant, BA2. We're discussing what sort of uh, measures can be put in place to try to uh, mitigate those risks. Uh, After this, we'll talk a bit about masks in general because they've become a very divisive issue. But there are ways to protect yourself if you're in public, if you're in a public place. Uh, We'll talk a bit about what the most effective ways to do that will will be, are, after this. I'm back with Colin Furness, infection control epidemiologist and an assistant professor at the Faculty of Information at the University of Toronto. We've been talking about what we perceive to be another rise in cases of COVID, uh, specifically linked to a new variant, BA2, but also to the easing of protections such as mask mandates and vaccine passports and so on. Colin, we're in the middle right now, I think, of this transition away from a lot of these protections that were in place. Would you halt them at this point? I mean, for instance, BC is looking at lifting its vaccine passport very very soon. Uh, Mask mandates were lifted in schools uh, when students went back. Are these the sorts of things that you would ask public health officials to reassess now? I think all of those interventions should be critically assessed all the time, and they should be improved when they can, as well as being removed when they aren't. We've got some interventions that don't make a lot of sense. One of them is the symptomatic screening that really doesn't affect anything, and, and it's a pretty gigantic nuisance. Um, we, When we mandate masks, if we're not mandating the right masks, then we're placing a huge burden on people without getting much benefit from it. So that's a badly implemented uh, intervention. As for vaccine cert- cert- certificates and proof of vaccination, that's been implemented so badly. I get it. It's a giant burden on businesses. It confuses 
the first time I went out where I needed one, I forgot mine because it's, it's just not something I was used to doing. And so I can completely understand how that has been completely creating havoc. But that's different. It's different to say we botched the way of doing it. We've made everyone miserable. That, that's one thing. It's another thing to say we don't need vaccination. We do. I think what, I, what I'm hearing you say is that there have been some good measures badly executed. There have been some bad measures executed, period. Uh, and now is high time that we figured out which ones work, which ones make sense, which ones are palatable, and put in place the ones that work the best because they're still needed. I think you just summarized everything I said, but in about a tenth of the words. So thank you, because <laughs> that's that is that's pretty much what I was trying to say. And it's very clear. It's 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 very clear. What we need to do. We need to take care of our indoor air quality, and we need to have people equipped with N95 masks that fit. And we could almost do away with everything else. We st- we still need surveillance testing because we still want to know uh, where where the virus is, and we want to know how it's how it's progressing, how it's evolving. It continues to surprise us. It continues continues to elude us. So we don't want to be overconfident. But in terms of people's daily lives, a sustainable way forward, learning to live with COVID is learning how to keep it under control without massive nuisances, especially ineffective ones. That's what learning to live with COVID ought to be. And so I I really want us to have a national conversation about what that term is supposed to mean, because every politician who uses it, it's been code for do nothing. And do nothing is going to have, it's going to have some really bad outcomes here and elsewhere. Yeah, tell me about that because we interviewed someone last week. We did a segment on on long haulers, long COVID, so to speak, and the idea that we don't really know. Now, for most people, that's not the case, but we don't really know individually what the impact of a COVID infection, even a BA2 infection might be. So the bad news on that, and it's 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 news that has taken me a long time to to digest because it really isn't great, is to imagine that COVID is not a respiratory virus. It pretends to be, and it does a good job of behaving like one. And that's certainly what puts people in hospital. So it's no laughing matter at all. And it's that respiratory phase of this virus that uh, that causes death. The problem is that quite apart from that, it's doing vascular damage. It's damaging your blood vessels and by extension, also damaging your brain. Uh, And, you know, that's, that's, that's for keeps, you know, brain doesn't grow back. And, and that's concerning because it's independent of the respiratory phase. So you could have a mild cold and also uh, severe damage to your vascular system and, and, and even some brain, brain tissue loss. We don't know. It looks increasingly like maybe that happens to everybody. And the question is whether it's noticeable or not. Um, we might compare it as far as brain damage goes to a, a bang on the head. You can have a bad concussion and seem to be okay. You can have a moderate concussion and really be in a fog for months. And you can have a concussion bad enough where, you know, you, you never come all the way back. And that seems to be what COVID is doing in the background. And again, it's, we don't know whether Omicron is doing less of it. It doesn't seem that way. We don't know whether vaccination means less long COVID. It doesn't seem that way. Omicron is still really new. It, and the word long and long COVID, of course, tells you you need some time uh, for all of this to shake out, to be able to see what's what's residual. But this is when I say to people, you don't want COVID. You really don't. And you don't want your kids to just get it and get it over with. You really don't. Because it looks like everybody gets vascular and neuro damage to some extent, maybe to a minor extent. We don't know. But I don't want to find out the hard way. And I really want people to hear that. Colin Furness, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate your insight. My pleasure. Thanks.